0: Welcome to the first ever episode 120 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you as always from level 39. And of course, we're in London, the heart of fintech. We've been downloaded in 111 countries. And not only were we the number one business podcast on iTunes in the UK, in the past week, you made us the number one podcast overall. Our listeners are the best in the world. And Jason clearly agrees with me. We have some fantastic guests this week. Of course, we have Ajit Tripathi, the FinTech and Digital Director from PwC. We have Richard Brown, the Chief Technology Officer of R3. And we have Richard Crook, the Head of Innovation Engineering at RBS. And I'll be asking those gents to say hello in just one second. So I'm here with Ajit Tripathi from PwC. Say hello, Ajit. Hello,
1: Simon. And hello, Word.
0: Uh, Richard Crook from uh, RBS. Say hello.
2: Hello, Simon.
0: And Richard Brown from R3. Hello, Sam. These gents would like me to stress these views are theirs and not those of their employer. Alrighty, this week we've got a wonderful selection of stories for you, but we'd be remiss if we didn't cover what happened in the US. There is a new president... President Trump um, and there are some interesting things and there's a story here on Business Insider about what the Trump presidency might mean for U.S. fintech. Ajit, you had some interesting comments really around what financial services might be reacting to. Um, Let's cover your thoughts on that first and then we'll jump into this story properly.
1: Definitely. So thanks Simon. As somebody who comes from a Wall Street background, for me there is one upside to Trump's presidency and that is we might see a little bit less regulation going forward. You might even roll back some things like the Volcker Rule and SIFMA's, uh, what do you call it, the fiduciary rule. So the Volcker Rule bans proprietary trading by by banks, right? So if you have a bank holding license in the U.S., you can't engage in proprietary trading. Now, the, uh, the rule started out with a one-line statement, but it ended up being... 600 or 700 pages of text, legal text that you actually had to follow and build a lot and lots and lots of metrics and control procedures and paperwork and policies that you actually have to write to adhere to that rule. Now, that has taken, at least it's my view, that that rule has taken a lot of liquidity out of the markets and it's causing, uh, I mean, it's 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 probably better for stability, but then it's causing overall lower liquidity because banks are trading less, which means hedge funds and asset managers also have uh, less uh, to trade against. And that means that the financial industry as a whole or capital markets as a whole are making less money and investment banking is structurally unprofitable, not just for this, but also for other regulations that have come through. Now, if you live in the US, then there are 50 states. Each one of them have their own rules. Uh, there are six cents or seven uh, predominant regulators, and those guys have their own rules. Uh, if you if the, the the last thing you want is any more regulation, and if Donald Trump has and some of the GOP guys have promised that they will unwind some of these rules, and they've been quite vocal about it. So as a as a, as a banker as as an ex investment banking person, for me this is really good. It- Everything else is bad.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a slight shining light there in the uh, in the dark night that is bad. Trump being it's elected. A, a
0: light in the darkness. There's a couple of things here in the article itself. Um, one of the suggestions is that there's less chance of fintech-specific regulation. Prior to announcing his economic plan in August, Trump repeatedly called for the scaling back of Dodd-Frank, suggested abolishing the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, the most fintech-friendly of U.S. agencies. Uh, and he's also said he will issue a temporary moratorium on new agency regulations. We Interesting that we talked last week about uh, the UK talking about having a big bang moment and potentially looking to see regulation as its strategic advantage and policy as its strategic advantage. Whereas here we're talking about potentially no regulation. And then there's also talk of um, you know if the immigration controls do come in, would have restricted access to labour, which I guess is quite similar to what we're facing with the old Brexit. But there's there's going to be lots of parallels
4: between the Brexit vote and the Trump vote, surely. In terms of it just being a, you know, protectionist, isolationist, you know, anti-immigrant, popularist vote,
5: no? I wonder whether that's... I wonder whether that's a dangerous um, interpretation. Uh, you've linked here to the uh, to, to, to the Business Insider piece. I think it was actually on the day of the elections, or before anyone even knew Trump had won. Um, Izzy Kaminska in the FT had an interesting piece, and she's been on she's been on this line for some months now. In fact, I, I know Simon; she argues with you on, on Twitter all the time. But uh, but her argument is a lot of the not just fintech, but a lot of the, the the West Coast tech startups, a lot of their business models that are driving huge amounts of you know, huge amounts of consumer surplus. You know, you can get better accommodation at lower. prices. Prices, you can get better um, transportation services at lower prices. But she's pointing out there's a flip side to that, which is, you know, some people lose their jobs, some people um, do less well. And, and if you zoom out from that, there's an argument that, okay, there are winners from trade, but there are also some losers from trade, there are winners from technology, and there are some losers. And if you believe, and you may not believe this, but if you believe that one aspect of Trump's win was the people who ultimately are on the losing side of free trade and um, immigration and, um, and new technology, their voices have now be, are now roaring and have been heard. I'd be thinking if I was trying to get funding on the West Coast from VCs for a business model that, that, that tried to do what some of these other firms are doing, I'm just wondering at the margin whether the, the, the direction of travel from, from, from Washington will move against those types of firms. Because that's what Trump says, he's, he's if he delivers, that's what he says he's trying to go against. So, so, so I think there's something to watch there.
2: The article I mean, the article talks about you know, there might be a reduction in uh, fintech investment. But the, the markets always don't like uncertainty. And the equities market is is always the the canary down the mine. And it shook off the Trump presidency election uh, result quite successfully. And that has to be a great sign. And that's a trickle down that you will see into the fintech investments, which is a good sign for all of us.
3: I think any any reaction will be... Um, short, should we say, in terms of doing it. And these things will have a way of recalibrating themselves, won't they, in terms of where we are. You know, I was arguing with a few people on Twitter earlier on about, as, as I often do, I have to apologise no. to that one to anybody listening, but um, the idea that this is probably the Trump piece is less impactful than Brexit, because actually there'll be four years of pain and uh, and then they'll vote in somebody else type thing and, uh, you know, let somebody else have a go. Whereas actually the, the Brexit piece, we probably have two or three years of uncertainty ahead of us until we actually get something and then we're into the, the abyss
4: in terms of where we're going. So the
2: market, vol- the market volatility is based on uncertainty, so you're absolutely right. And but
4: but I do think there's, there's a, you know, to, back to Richard's point, I saw a survey that said that 67% of parents think that their children will be worse off than they are across the G7. I think with the Italian... The vote on the Italian... What's the word I'm looking for? The referendum. The referendum. Yeah. On their constitution the French election a variety of, of sort of big votes coming along if 67 percent of parents really do think their children are going to be worse off and they're voting for something else and whether that's driven by technology or macroeconomics or globalization that's a that's an uncertain world we're looking and to in the future
5: and it's it's, it, it, it's
4: fascinating I was, it was because it's it's
5: often that perception is often untrue in in absolute terms but relatively people feel that there was I read a sort of fascinating tweet I think it was from, from Benedict Evans of, of a16 Z on the way here where he was tweeting adverts from 1985 um, personal computer uh, magazine in the US for what, what you could buy and what it cost and one of the things he tweeted I think it was in today's money $135 for this, this chip and expansion board you could buy for your PC that would allow your PC to remember what time it was from when you turned it off to turn it on again and that was $135 just for that feature so, so clearly we are unbelievably better off now than we were then so this idea that people's children will be worse off on its face absolutely is just manifestly untrue but relative to them in terms of their social standing and relative to their peers, that's what people worry about, I think.
1: I think, Richard, uh, there is a question out there whether, uh, you know, moving from the coal mining era of Margaret Thatcher to the services industry that we see in England today, uh, we are much better off. But going forward with a much higher degree of automation with AI and robotics and and, and blockchain and other technologies, will that still be the case Is is, is a question I think that's worth asking.
3: I don't know, when everybody gets rid of all the menial <coughs> tasks that nobody needs to do and we could just kick back and uh, chat about what the robots are doing in the next, uh, next revolution, that sounds like quite good fun to me. But uh, the, the argument always descends into what
0: does humanity do, doesn't it, in terms of where we are? Yeah. There's a piece of work um, Cambridge are doing, uh, Cambridge Institute of Manufacturing, looking at how do you rebalance the economy to a net exporter. In other words, the UK current account is, uh, is negative largely because we import more than we can produce. Um, We import more than we can produce because we don't have a manufacturing base, we are a services economy. And one of the things they were looking at is do things like uh, additive manufacturing, 3D printing, blockchain and IoT allow us to relocalize manufacturing? The UK has been historically very, very good at the F1 stuff, you know, really cutting edge stuff. Can we start to see relocalizing manufacturing, creating marketplaces around manufacturing as being something new? So maybe there's opportunity there at the end of it, but I saw a great stat on Twitter. And again, I'll, I'll try and cite the source for the show notes where they showed the average income of the middle class in the U.S. in 1985 to 2015. And on average, uh, you know, if you're earning less than $65,000, your income was down 59% uh, or 52.9% mm-hmm. in real terms. So no wonder people are feeling it. Globalization hasn't been good for everybody. And to Izzy's point... Has Silicon Valley caused it? I don't know if it's caused it, but it's certainly exacerbated it.
2: Uh, another way of looking at that is, you know, the speed of change. It's not the velocity, it's the acceleration. It's getting faster. It's getting and, and if you want to blame fintech, now, the fintech industry and, and, and the, the likes of us around the table are making this quicker. Mm. So the, all the things you just talked about, Simon, you know, that's making it harder for people to move forward. And if we do it too quick... As the the old Indian uh, says, you, you want to be looking back two years and nothing's changed. You want to look back seven years and everything's changed. Well, we've probably passed that point now. We are moving at such speed. We are dislocating the electorate, yeah, and is, that's causing this frustration.
3: Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult because we're, we're talking about <coughs> a, a group of disenfranchised people who have essentially been left behind by all of the things that were advocates for. You know, the, the I'm sure... I, I can't imagine that many of us would have voted for Brexit in the same way as if we were all sort of in uh, in America. I can't imagine many of us would have voted for Trump type thing. But um, it kind of feels like we're you know we're definitely at, at a point of no return now. You know the what are all of the people doing that have been sort of disenfranchised by the technological revolution? Well, they're clearly
4: voting for the way you used to be. So. Well, one thing that they'll be doing is building a big wall.
3: You
0: know, <laughs> we,
4: need, we need a president to come in with a massive work creation scheme, some infrastructure that will take a long time and yeah. be very expensive. And I think a big wall is probably the idea. I think the question
1: the is answer. if Silicon Valley can come up with a digital wall instead of a physical wall. Oh, <laughs> right.
0: So speaking of what will they be doing, it seems like their Twitter accounts will be tweeting whether they like it or not. Um, there's a story here about uh, the political Twitter bots will rage this election day. And, and it seems like um, more than 80% of the tweets that were happening because of uh, you know, for, for Donald Trump was not happening because of a ground game or a social media strategy involving people. But it was actually a whole bunch of bots tweeting and retweeting the story. Jason, you had more on this. Yeah, well, it's from a, a, a Wired article. And I, for one,
4: welcome our new tweetbot overlords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, we go back to Obama's election. There was a massive groundswell. Social media really kind of came into its own in, in the sort of Obama years. And I think modern, the the modern politician is always looking on how to use that and how to move it forward. And, and, and Trump, more than anyone, went from, you know, Nowhere, so 13 million followers versus Hillary's why,
1: 10.2. And this is why Hillary, Hillary was using email instead of using social media. <laughs> there you go. she left the wall. But there's a, there's
4: an interesting study by the by Oxford University's Computational Propaganda Project, which just sounds. Crazy cool. That does sound like an amazing job. So shout out to Sam Woolley. But um, he did a study to show that 80% of Trump's likes, follows and retweets were automated versus something like 50% of Hillary's. So, um, and he goes on to say a third of uh, pro-Trump tweets, try and say that after a bit, and about a fifth of pro-Clinton tweets between the first and second debates came from bot accounts, which produced more than 1 million tweets in total. So there's this great, you know, move from, you know, I think it's Seth Godin and Gary Vaynerchuk who say marketers ruin everything. Well, it's marketers and coders in this point, because we've moved from this massive public groundswell to now automating that. So it seems like there's a massive groundswell that not only can, uh, you know, your average uh, Twitter user follow but also the mainstream media started to report on mm-hmm. sentiment analysis and volumes Definitely. of tweets everything else so it creates a, a crazy sort of echo chamber of um, social
0: media created by bots tweeting bots against bots perception is reality and our robot overlords are changing the future and, and maybe there's a little bit of 4chan happening here as well and, and that sort of community trolling uh, there's some interesting stories on that this week
5: I guess Maybe not for the first time. I guess Donald Trump and I have have quite a lot in common because I I discovered now, I discovered hey, this. Hey, <laughs> well, Richard Brown. Had so <laughs> Richard Brown I did um, let let me coming. qualify that statement. Um, <laughs> I, um, for those who know me, I used to, to tweet at a blog quite a lot. And it, it died off in the last year as I've been heads down with the team um, building Corda that I guess we'll um, we'll get on to talk about more about later. Uh, but I, I've started being um, more active on Twitter or my blog recently. Um, and I noticed, and it was, it just, was you, just as you were describing that story, it made me realize I noticed um, whenever I put out a blog post, um, for example, the one I did earlier this week, um, you know, immediately, sometimes almost immediately, and you think, God, how quickly are these people reading these, these, these tweets and these articles? Immediately get favorites immediately get retweeted, and it's quite flattering. So you go and look to see who's done it, and you thought, oh, I remember those names. And I suddenly realized they are not names I have seen at all anywhere except from when I was previously blogging. It's clearly just fake accounts that have just been set up to randomly retweet FinTech articles. No, that's what I so, think David
0: Breer is. He's a, he's a fake Twitter account. Although, no, you've got the blue tick, so you must be a real human.
2: Is that, is that similar to your uh, online dating experience, Richard? Yes,
4: yes. Um, a Yes. I, I guess there is a there's a point here about online identity. Because whether it's this story, whether it's bots, the fact that we're not connected, you know, personally Two specific social media accounts makes all of this stuff, happen, you know, possible from trolling, from you know robot, from bot armies tweeting, you know, the same retweets.
3: But I think this is why Twitter should essentially verify everybody to to your point. So actually, at the point where it can be held up as a a point of identification, then actually that type of thing shouldn't happen, other than you know, inane retweeters type thing in terms of sort of doing it. Well, you
5: say that. I tried to get myself verified by Twitter a few weeks ago because I thought, I better, I better get that blue tick. And I got this really quite disconcerting and quite scary email back saying, we we can't verify your identity. And I think, well, Pretty sure I'm a real person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: pretty sure I am Richard
0: Brown. <laughs> but, but apparently, apparently think not. yourself and exactly. start wondering. Oh, am I Richard Brown? Am I really? Maybe you're Richard Crook. That's you're <laughs> going to go work for RBS.
2: I think the other theme in, the, in that news article is is around the personal news feed that people are listening to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you talked about echo chambers. You know, there's clearly two echo chambers. There was during Brexit. There isn't now, uh, or during the, the U.S. election. And we've always picked up the paper that we want to read that's not new but
1: the, like page three the, in the sun
2: the, 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 <laughs> the yeah, it's your personal choice <laughs> the, the key thing here is what social media has given us is the ability to personalize that to such a level and you've yeah. got things like AI coming and the bots are just the start of that personalizing it to just hear what you want to hear it's so not you're perfect. not being challenged you're not in any way, exploring any ideas, you used to buy the Times or the New York uh, New York Times, and that was what you got. That was the that was the news, and we all read it. Now you get what you want to hear, and that's turning us into a feedback loop, which is polarizing or creating these echo chambers. These echo chambers might be tiny, but it's it's really interesting to transport yourself into another uh, echo chamber. So actually, I would I would uh, certainly propose or, or, or recommend to anybody take yourself off your normal feeds put yourself into a Twitter feed that you don't normally go into and you'll find yourself in a little micro echo chamber and you'll learn a ton of stuff that's just you get down there and wow, wow yeah, exactly. a different perspective and it's mm. like we, we've lost that but yeah, the I, I search engines
0: have this as well. So I, I'm a big, avid fan of DuckDuckGo <coughs> uh, because if you search on Google, you'll find things that are very relevant to you, but actually they know what you've clicked before. So it turns out when when I whenever I search for blockchain, my own articles that I've written came out, <laughs> And it's like I, I think Google <laughs> flattery gets you everywhere. Uh, I go to yeah. DuckDuckGo. Do, do you agree
2: with those articles? Oh, of course okay. not. Do you still agree them, with those articles?
0: They were, they were written by me. Of course I don't. Um, but one thing I'd say is I go to DuckDuckGo and they are much lower down and it's actually really good. Journalists used to have the concept of balance, but user-generated content many still do, but user-generated content doesn't have that sense of balance. And speaking of balance, um, yeah, we you, should do probably you, balance. Do you, well,
2: before we get off this story, do you, do you deploy a, a, a Twitter bot?
0: I cannot confirm or do I, no. <laughs> I, I I've never actually. I quite like using uh, Twitter the old-fashioned way. Call me fashioned. So. <laughs> I would tell you you don't use the Twitter app. I do. I I actually use the Twitter
4: app. Everything quite. you heard it here first. What, what do you do Sorry. So
5: I I it's funny because it came up the um, I forget who it was. I think it was Christopher Allen of Blockstream, and um, I think it was Zuko of, of Zcash. were talking about because they're getting inundated with people who um, wanting to talk to them on Twitter. They said if only Twitter had a mute feature, so you can block people for a period of time without them knowing they've been they've been blocked. And I was thinking, it's had that for years, hasn't it? And, and what I realised was because I used Tweetbot, which is you know it's just like an, an app that's a, that's a Twitter client, and it has all these features that. Twitter doesn't have it doesn't have any of the ads it doesn't so, have any of the junk it's brilliant I just assumed everybody used it but it turns out and Simon's it's, 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 some people still use the, the quaint old uh, it sounds Twitter. like
1: a pretty interesting comment coming from someone who spent a career building censorship resistant software you can just block <laughs> whosoever
0: says something you don't like um, um, Ask them. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> so uh, next story up, we've got uh, an exclusive from Reuters. Goldman Sachs considers Frankfurt move over Brexit. Sources say. So um, I guess David, we've had a lot of stories about Brexit in the past few weeks. Is this is this really Goldman just saber rattling, or are they actually going to go? What do we think here?
3: Well, I, as you say, I think every week we have a such and such is leaving London and heading off to somewhere uh, somewhere more acclimatized to you know you fostering. The Falling. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the sky, it does feel like it is falling this week, I have to say, with various other things London happening. Bridge. Yeah, but uh, but maybe not the London Bridge is falling down, as you say. So uh, so I, I think this is an interesting one. And it's, you know, to your point earlier on, Jason, about how many points of reference do you need until this is a trend? You know, worryingly, we're hearing more and more organizations that are sort of putting in a plan B and a plan C and I think uh, probably given where Goldman Sachs are at this moment, I think that's probably all that they're doing, really. You know, they've made pretty clear quotes in this piece in Reuters that actually this is one of many options that they're considering in terms of what they're doing. By no means is their sort of boxes packed and they're, they're sort of uh, taping up things as we as we speak to actually sort of leave the country. But um, I think arguably we'd probably call them pretty... Irresponsible if they didn't have a, a plan B at this stage, given the uncertainty in the market. Um, and I think probably these stories are going to c- continue to come out until actually we get some serious clarity from the government in terms of actually what this means and what uh, the next phases of uh, the, the departure from Europe actually means.
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the Reuters uh, piece quoted three people familiar with the matter. I love that phrase. Uh-huh. They were just familiar with the matter. Uh-huh. And they were talking about the fact that you know, obviously Goldman Sachs currently relies on the EU's passporting system 88% of their regional employees are based in the UK and that in order to get uh, ECB supervision they would have to increase their assets in the Eurozone to 30 billion euros and I think they, uh, it quotes them as roughly having 850 billion dollars worth of assets in London at the moment so the fact that they've got a vacant floor in Frankfurt, the fact that they could move some assets over, move some people over and get a different supervision class that means that they wouldn't have to rely on passporting you know, potentially as their only lifeline. I mean, that's got to be a, a, a smart move.
1: Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's a strange one because uh, they could also have gone to Luxembourg and uh, done something where they actually booked trades in Luxembourg, but then back-to-back them to London and still get the regulatory approvals in Europe. Now, if they're going to Frankfurt, they still have to deal with the German labor laws and potentially unionized labor. So I'm, I'm not quite sure if Europe is strictly friendly for some of the American investment banks at this time. But yes, you're right. I mean, everybody needs a plan B. I
5: can think of it from the, from the human aspect. So we, you know, we're growing a lot at the moment. We're trying to hire people to add to our team. And it would being really particular because we even how it's just so complicated, the stuff we're building. We need really good talent. And we're hiring in London. It's expensive, but we're hiring in London because that's where the talent is. And, um, and, and it's, it sucks in talent from, from all over the world. And, and I have no insight at all into uh, into in, into what the banks are thinking. But I just try and put myself in, you know, in the mind of someone who's thinking about the location strategy and think about the conversation I'd have with my team and said, "Right, guys, okay, I know you like London. You know, There's the nightlife. There's all the things you can do, all this stuff. Well, there's this there's this city in Germany. I mean, it's not quite the same as London. But the nightlife. I'm not. I I I, I don't see how that conversation ends. Well, I'm. I'm
3: yeah, I'm. I'm not moving. It, it's difficult. I guess it's like where a head office is and where their staff is. A sort of quite separate terms. Yeah, right? we we can definitely sort of testify that uh, that Berlin's a quite nice place to be as well in terms of sort of doing it. But um, Brexit probably
0: won't be the reason in the next couple of weeks that you uh, up sticks and move. So absolutely but uh, we do need a higher form of intelligence according to Bank of America or at least there's an article here from Bank NXT that says Bank of America's new chatbot is a higher form of intelligence and I think Jason part of the reason behind this is they're saying the chatbot is actually predictive it's trying to predict what you need uh, before you know you need it if your credit score is getting lower or you know you're about to run into some financial problems and you've often talked about being more like a good waiter than a bad landlord good is wait. this is this AI I' learning I'm slowly learning is this an example of that or is this just a gimmick um, so they, they talk about
4: Erica and I'm fascinated by the fact that Siri, Cortana these are all women like when, where's the, where's the male I think so I think there really is that but it's a new I'm chatbot from Bank of America, America uh, and there's, there's two sides to this because on one uh, it seems like a, a convoluted story because on one side they're talking about conversational interfaces they're talking about chatbots on the other side, they're talking about that rich, intelligent notifications prediction side of things. Um, and, and I think that those are two set, two very separate things. You can deliver them both, both just as well without each other. Um, so I'm, on one hand, I love that some of the stories that they bring up around, uh, you know, watching transactions come in and saying, uh, you know, that's too expensive. That looks a little bit dodgy. You're going to run out of money by the end of the month. And all of that sort of predictive banker in your pocket kind of stuff. On the other hand, I don't think building intelligent chatbots into apps is the way forward. You know, conversational interfaces, when they work at their best, are very much almost an alternative to uh, going into an app to do things. You know, you look at the Amazon Echo, you look at Siri, you look at, um, uh, uh, at the Google Assistant, and really you see things where actually you're in a particular context and you can get one of a variety of services to activate and do a fairly simple job. Uh, and that's great. And then on the other hand, you know, you've got people building chatbot interfaces directly into apps, where arguably the interface that's facing people can be, you know, better and quicker at at achieving the end result, especially when you look at things like onboarding, discovery, validation, switching tasks, going back steps, picking from lists. There's, there's so many things that actually a traditional user interface does better than conversational interfaces but we're
0: just at the start of working out what those well, are really balancing those two is interesting we should ask we've got Richard Crook here and, and you've had a go at one of these uh, chatbot things what, what are your thoughts here what have you learned
2: so the first thing is uh, ours was uh, ours was called Luvo and we broke cover a while ago now and, and that makes you realise that we didn't pick she or he it doesn't have sex it's not a it's not a human it's, not a, it's humor. a robot it's a robot um, and then, Actually, we, we we learned quite quickly that you, you, we do a, a, one of our innovation spikes. We, four days, build a trading bo- uh, 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 an AI bot um, backed into IBM Watson. I think that's any secret. And it, it responds, and it responds quite well. Uh, I think, actually, that's where the journey only starts because it's quite easy to build a, an AI bot, a uh, chat bot. It, it's actually very difficult to train it. Um, and the first lesson... We all got a good experience of is when uh, one of the engineers said, Oh, I'll tell you what, we'll put it out there and it'll teach itself. To which Microsoft did it just before us, and and their bot within two days became a racist. (laughs) (laughs) Not entirely think the crowd is a good thing here. So you then get into a really interesting conversation around uh, who's going to train this bot, and you've got to go through that who's training the trainers, who's our best assistants. Now, and that's actually a really lovely social conversation rather than technological. Richard, surely
1: it's the customers who are the best trainers, aren't they? Because think about it this way. So I've been married a long time, right? And uh, over a period of time, I've learned to almost predict uh, what my wife is thinking and definitely the other way around, right? So she almost almost knows what to expect. So, I mean, that's how humans respond. We learn and we have patterns and customers have patterns. They have problems they struggle with. Why, would you, why wouldn't you learn from the history of a customer's interactions and predict what they might be facing and how? what's the best way to Sorry, respond to them?
0: The issue is you need a large data set, right? I mean, you look at Facebook's data set. It's, it's one, 1. 1.2 billion people, every conversation they've had for the last 10 years with each other. How do you get that as, you know, where are you capturing that amount of data with which you can teach an algorithm from? If you're Bank of America, do you have that data. As, and, and it gets better with time as you interact with customers. Yeah,
2: but context, context... Every time someone comes up with AI and chatbot, well, context is the key word, right? We, we're learning about lateral language processing and whether it gets it right or wrong. Intent and, and content, always easy, actually, quite, quite easy. Some of the, the, the AI algorithms are really good at that now. But you know, I'm currently having fun with Alexa. Mm. And, and mm. The, the interesting thing there is, as you give it context it starts to make the conversation a lot more human. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the hardest thing that we've learned. Mm-hmm. And the, the, <laughs> it always goes back, when we're back now around a big, long cycle, I only have to remind the group here about Paperclip and Microsoft's Paperclip. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and there's big, broad smiles there's, we used to open up a word document. It's like, hi, how can I help you? And it's like, first thing you can do is go away. <laughs> and there's a balance here to be had. So, so some some customers, you know, love yeah, that. In as well. Some people absolutely hate it. There, there are a generation up, of
0: people coming to the workforce that have never used Clippy. They have missed out entirely if you've not dealt with Clippy in I'm worried about the
5: Richard talking about the social aspect. I wasn't paying attention, so maybe these people I was talking, I was about be talking to um, to get my broadband fixed were um, were, were chatbots, but. Uh, but maybe they weren't and because like it's like most people I've got loads of tabs open at once and I think banks and service providers haven't realised the, the impact they're having on the psychology of their customers so I open a chat I start talking I, I flicked away to, talk, to look at something else and like half an hour later I remembered I had a chat open yeah. immediately the, the guilt running through my body is <laughs> I thought oh my god I've left this, this, this poor assistant just waiting for my response I bet they can't hang up I bet they're not allowed to hang up until I go back so all these customers around <laughs> the world feeling guilty that they've not been responding to this fake human at the end of the the chatbot. But then the other thing is, uh, I hate um, IVR systems, and I suspect I'll grow to hate chatbots. But at least with IVR <laughs> systems, you can just match the keypad. You hit, hit, you hit keypad. You hit star hundred times, and eventually you get through to a human. <laughs> what are <laughs> you pressing the chatbot to actually get to a human? There's like some special keyboard, <laughs> keyboard combination. And uh, my
1: theory my uh, uh, is that if people knew awesome. that they were talking to a chatbot, they would behave a little bit worse than if they knew that they were, they were talking to a human, yeah. and that would affect the behaviour of the chatbot. I,
3: I think people do that in IVRs, though, don't they? So right. the minute you know you're talking to an IVR. Oh, suddenly, the really oh, the yeah. really quaint
4: English accent That's in me <laughs> comes out, just to make sure that I actually get to that idea. You know, it's like a, it's a bar
3: of Englishness, isn't it? But, 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 but
4: almost tying it back to the Trump story, what you need is your own chatbot to interact with their chatbot, <laughs> and then you know, away it goes. It can be uh, you know, asking
0: whatever you need for next three days it's a matter of time i'm sure but david it seems your strategy is slightly different to mine which is just to insist so i want to speak to a person i want to speak to a person and saying that on loop my until point is mainly i don't want to speak to a
3: person i think oh. that's the, the i'm surprised as a millennial you're not wanting to speak to people less and less, and see, less again
0: great. richard called it i'm quite quaint in a lot of ways <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think
3: we're, I think we're ai is still in its infancy in terms of what we're doing and i think things like chatbots are it 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 isn't a mainstream thing yet. You know, we're not going to see this being massively adopted yet because actually the technology that underpins it is just not there. It's kind of like trying to, and I'll have to admit as a a dad, I have judged my son already on his sporting prowess, and he's only four, and that's probably wrong of me. Because actually when he's 15, he might be really good at football, but right now he's terrible. And actually I think what we're doing with AI is almost judging what AI can do. And arguably we've done that for quite a few years now, you know, Syria was terrible to start with, but it's getting better now in terms of what it's doing, you know, Alexa actually is very, very good and you can interact with it. And, you know, like I say, the more context that you give to it, the better the response that you actually get to it. So, you know, as these things mature, the experience is going to get better and better and better.
4: I'd still break apart that sort of chatbot interface from AI though. I think there's amazing things to be learned from contextual analysis, prediction, the ability to provide services to customers as they need it. The fact that, uh, you know, IBM amongst others do great natural language processing and semantic mapping and everything else, you know, is one thing, but
0: I don't think they're, they're, arguably, you know, interconnected forever. Yeah, chatbots and AI are two very different beasts and it's the, important if you're building something in financial services, you're keeping those two very, very separate. And it's also important if you're in financial services that you're really, really caring about cybersecurity. Um, recently, we know uh, you, it might not have escaped you that uh, Tesco had a, a rather sizable hack. Um, but this Bloomberg article here, David, saying this is a warning for fintech as well. It's not just the banks that are bad. It's, it's it's you know, fintechs get hacked too maybe there's a warning here
3: yeah i you know i feel
0: quite bad for for, for tesco bank because there's been a, a huge amount of
3: sort of negativity around this one in terms of uh, in terms of where we are and obviously so i guess at the point where twenty thousand customers accounts are being taken over in terms of what they're doing you know cyber is not really a tick box exercise and i think you know this highlights a massive thing on that that Despite what anything that we do, the security of the internet is never going to be there. So um, I do feel sorry for them because arguably this could probably be any high street bank facing into this type of problem. And arguably, given the type of um, uh, breach that's been sort of seen here, then this could probably be happening in a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of banking organizations without us really knowing
0: about it, which is terrifying. So the article here talks about even tech-savvy startups have proven vulnerable. Uh, in 2014, payments app Clinkle was hacked before it even launched. And earlier this year, Utopian Digital Currency Investment Project, the DAO, was hacked for around $60 million. So this is the subject that <laughs> journalists seem to love. I, Richard, you were talking earlier to me about uh, how the DAO is something we've learned from um, and something that the, the, the blockchain community could learn from. Are hacks always a bad thing?
2: I don't think so. Uh, I think if you learn from it uh, and it doesn't happen again, uh, you've clearly got something... Uh, a good news story there, and you're seeing a huge amount of attack on the public Ethereum network right now, and that is helping the community because although they are working night and day and we're looking at the uh, the code being checked in, it's fast moving. They're yeah, about to do to a hard fork again. Actually, from our perspective, this is making that whole uh, industry uh, Tougher and safer, and there isn't a single financial institution that doesn't take security, extreme, cyber security, extremely and physical security, extremely seriously. Um, this is a massive growth industry. Um, it's only just uh, recently that the government uh, said how much it was going to spend on cybersecurity. Now, that's going on in every nation uh, national state, and a large amount of that's coming out of the military pockets, the Department of Defense and, and defense budgets. That is a generation of cybersecurity that's going to grow up and some of them will become black hats. And unlike taking a rifle off a soldier, which makes him less useful, you can't de-skill a cybersecurity professional that you taught how to either attack or defend. Some of those individuals will go rogue and that is the industry we're seeing grow up. And at the end of it, what we would like to see is much greater transparency. We always want to see transparency around what happened, how did it happen, because the leads into this is more important than what actually happened, or how did you get to this space? And then at that point, share so that we all can protect ourselves so it doesn't just uh, daisy chain around the industry. Like, cause there's so much we can learn from this. I've,
5: I've got no insight into Tesco, and I wish them the best. I mean, I, I can't imagine how, how how difficult it must be for for, for their IT people um, in the lead up to and and. and to that, and right now, but there are there are other industries we can learn from. Just as you know, software engineering is like is a very young branch of engineering, and there's like hundreds of years of, of learning we can take. You take just the, the tragedy. I guess it was yesterday, only yesterday Croydon with that that tram that um that, that crashed. It, we know what will happen. The Rail Accidents Investigation Board will um, do an investigation, and they will publish a really detailed report, step by step, second by second, of exactly what happened, what was the proximate cause, what were all the things that led up to it, um, and 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 that will. Not happen again, um, the industry will learn from it and um, and we'll all be better because there's full transparency. And we need to get to that in technology.
4: But I guess the, the problem here is that unlike a tram that everyone sees crash, you know, a cybersecurity incident that no one sees doesn't tank your share price by 3% and that actually there are real world commercial shareholder level issues.
1: Yeah, I, I think there are a few dimensions to this problem. And the first one is that there is a lot of new regulation in Europe. Right, So I think we're going to see minimum cybersecurity standards across the various European jurisdictions because somehow there is a belief in Europe that writing a rule makes it real. And we are also seeing privacy rules like GDPR, Global uh, General Data Privacy re- Regulation. And we're also seeing open banking and PSD too. So banks are being asked to open up their infrastructure through APIs and they're also being asked to protect the privacy of their customers. And those two things are particularly hard when you're a bank with a 50-year-old legacy infrastructure that you're going to build an API around. So I think we are moving in the direction where the regulators are assuming that writing a rule is adequate and, and, and not giving the banks enough time to respond to some of those challenges that are coming through. And Tesco is just the beginning, the tip of the iceberg. And I think we're going to see much bigger issues to deal
3: with. I, th- I think the interesting thing is, Usually these types of attacks are going after the biggest payoff in terms of doing stuff. So, you know, because Tesco is, is, what is it, 70% of the market? I think it said in the article. Then it's interesting that they've managed to infiltrate a bank in this sense. You know, Barclays and HSBC take millions of attacks on, on a day to day basis. And it's not like people haven't been trying to protect themselves. You know, the article actually references that this year it's going to be well over £700 million being spent by UK banks to try and protect themselves through cybercrime. So if you're an agency or a consultancy out there doing cybercrime, then uh, right now is probably a good time to knock on the doors of quite a few banks because I guess they're going to be well and truly sort of locking down the house right now. So kachin.
0: So... Ajit mentioned something interesting there. You said that the beginnings of open banking are really starting to come in and, and bank as a platform is something that David's talked about a lot. And we've got a story here from ZDNet about uh, Banco Sabadell out of uh, out of Spain are launching their bank as a platform and open APIs proposition. This is now I think a trend. It's becoming almost a meme that uh, the, the banks are having to move in this direction. David, what does this mean this bank as a platform thing? Is it is it really coming or is this just everybody doing a me too thing that's, that's not going to happen and not going to make any difference um i
3: I think we're seeing a lot of people trying to get out ahead of to your point around psd2 uh you know this is a really big play by these guys to sort of not only embrace it but go well beyond actually what the regulations actually stipulating they need to do so fantastic that they're doing it it's precisely whether these guys are going to be the the right types of people to implement these things or whether some of the startups in this space are going to be more uh, well-placed to do this stuff. So, Booyah. you know, whether people like Solaris or Bud are, are going to be much better placed than a big bank to start integrating these things, we'll kind of wait to see. But yeah, commendable that they're out there and doing it, really. A lot of people are talking about it and not many people are doing it.
2: I think if you look at uh, the banks, the, they have a long history um, of using interfaces or APIs. Uh-huh. Uh, and to, uh, Royal Bank Scotland is no different. you know, you've got a large business that comes over Uh, Probably the majority, I don't know, the figures uh, of our business is done over uh, digital interfaces, APIs, uh, if you will. Um, If you think of uh, those becoming open and self-service, that's just the next step in the journey. um, And the uh, regulatory uh, environment is is pushing us towards that goal. But there's there's no doubt that uh, the banks are very much opening up. It's an interesting
3: point that they actually state in the article here that it's a, you know, they they say it's a a radical departure from what they're doing, but actually will allow third parties to enter that platform as well. So, you know, the, the beautiful thing about this is that actually what it does is it not only exposes what they're doing to other people, but allows integration with third party access into them. So that for me is disruption, not just from a technological level, it's Fundamental business model transformation. That's
1: absolutely, the key, the key point. And uh, so we know that uh, you know when the Bank of Bangladesh heist happened, it was in this. It wasn't really Swift's fault. It was Bank of Bangladesh letting some computers on the internet, right? And then the hackers got in. And once you have the interface, then you get into the system and you do whatever you want. You might as well have a blockchain or whatever you have, but if your interfaces are not secure, the human interfaces, then your system is not secure. And uh, with open banking, I think what's gonna change is that a lot of APIs will be used by uh, startups who may not have you know, code or other control standards that are mature enough to protect Uh, the interfaces that they're using and uh, I think the customers are always going to call the bank first. They're not going to call the startup and say, hey, what happened here? They're going to call this big bank that they really know and the brand they understand. And that'll create a reputation like and Certainly, year.
4: we're in the world of uh, Bitcoin exchanges, and uh, you know who has the the least worst security. <laughs> <And> <laughs> well, most worst I think security. think
3: yeah, who has the reputation. That's the question. Well, it's, it's the liability question, and, that, and that's exactly. still the unanswered question around things like PSD2. Really, is where does that liability when? The sort of shit hits the fan really uh, and and the uh, the question still hasn't been answered satisfactorily i think for definitely on the part of the banks really that to your point on uh, the cyber security piece they're being told to open up but they're not told to really what happens when it goes wrong so that's
0: very true and speaking of interesting ways of doing hacking um, there's an article here in Motherboard where saying Adobe, after 20 minutes of listening, a new Adobe tool can make you say anything. So I think this is it learns how to mimic your voice perfectly, like some sort of uh, it, maybe it puts these uh, these people who do voices for a living out of, out of a job on stage. And we'll just have Adobe kind of standing on stage doing famous people's voices. I mean, is this a, a way to hack or is this just an interesting gimmick? David, I know you quite like this one. I love this. I watched this all the way through.
3: I thought it was very entertaining because actually the guy who was actually presenting it was incredibly entertaining doing it, wasn't he, in terms of the the, the actual talk. But it was so easy to deliver as well. So within about five to 10 minutes, he was actually able to make the person that he had recorded and the system only listened for 20 minutes, say pretty much whatever he wanted to, which is sort of living in a and maybe tying this back to the, the Donald Trump point that we made at the beginning where fact checking is a slight... Uh, Aside, at the point (laughs) where anybody can put out anything sounding like you, That's quite a terrifying world, isn't it, in terms of what we're living in? It's also
0: the thing with the increasing reliance on voice biometrics that we're seeing from banks and financial services now. If if there's a tool now that can replicate your voice perfectly, is this going to be a way to hack all of the voice biometrics? I mean, we found um, a a couple of months ago that we could uh, quite easily hack into some of the facial recognition stuff just by taking a photo of somebody and then holding that phone up to the other phone. Um, It was relatively easy.
3: Well, I'm, I'm sure pretty much... 20 minutes on YouTube and you can pick up a talk of any of us in the room talking somewhere, doing something. So, you know, suddenly all of our security is pretty much uh, broken and that's uh, quite a terrifying
4: place to be, isn't it? But I guess this is where a number of the stories from today come together. In some ways, you've got, you know, bots, advanced technology that not only the banks using, but individual consumers are using. And suddenly the, the vast tools that I've got to use Photoshop to create a, a, a fake bill, to use, you know, the, the new Adobe tool to fake my voice, to uh, use my cybersecurity skills to start trying to probe different organizations to see how they work. It um it's such a, a new and evolving you know uh landscape no, never mind the dyn uh domain name hack that happened what last week mm-hmm. uh it it really becomes a wild west in the on the digital uh landscape
2: I don't know. I I put a much more positive spin on this. (laughs) I'm an engineer and there's there's lots of engineers out there who are sitting there going, finally, (laughs) terrified of being video, terrified of being on stage, I can get someone else to write the words and I can look camera ready. Uh, oh, and and right. deliver a perfect uh, thing nice, Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. So there's that. a lot of engineers out there who are thinking this is this is my we're made. Oh, I this is a different a different way. I also see see this
5: opportunity. Presumably, this means I've now got plausible deniability for anything I've ever said. Yeah.
3: Although they did actually reference that they they are implementing. They, they they were very vague about how this would work, but the equivalent of a watermark within these. So it was very um, evident that this was a manufactured speech run. Rather than So, I you know, I don't think it's going to be a, the back old days of sort of somebody murmuring this is a demo of under, <laughs> under the, the size of it, or if you play it backwards, it says some sort of weird message. But, you know, definitely they said they were going to sort of mark it in some way in terms of the... Uh, the fake stuff versus the real stuff.
5: Thank you so much for not making the obvious and horrific idea of voice print watermark on the blockchain.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it seemed too obvious to bring up, you know. So somebody had to. Uh, when we get back from a word from our sponsor, we're going to get into the subject of blockchain. But now to our sponsor.
2: Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. And
0: thank you very much to our sponsor. We really appreciate all of the good love we get from our sponsors. So our next segment is all about all things blockchain. And uh, I think the first one, since we've got Mr. Richard Brown in the room with us, we need to talk about R3 You've talked about you're going to open source a thing called Corda. What is Corda and why are you open sourcing it?
5: Yeah, so Corda is a distributed ledger platform, so a blockchain platform, if you like. We've been working on it for just over a year now. In fact, I went back to our source code um, system over the weekend because I was sending uh, an email to all our team to sort congratulate them on the progress. And, um, and I checked and the very first commit to the um, the Corda code base was November the 3rd, 2015. So almost exactly a year ago, we started work on this. Um, and Corda is a distributed ledger platform, like I say, a blockchain platform, but it, it, it's a bit different. It's designed explicitly for and by um, the world's financial institutions so uh, I guess as, as some of you listeners know R3 is a consortium of over 75 of the world's um, largest financial institutions and for the last year um, we've been running multiple work streams architecture product um, our global collaborative laboratory a whole a whole bunch of things we've been working on um, but one of the um, probably one of the largest work streams has been building a blockchain platform from scratch which is called Corda and we can talk about why we're doing that later um, but Corda is it's been maturing rapidly. Uh, we're really pleased with progress. Um, and as we committed to our members and as I announced in April, we'll be open sourcing that under the Apache 2 license and it will be available on November the 30th.
0: That's very, very cool. And I think it may be a watershed moment of, uh, 75 financial institutions getting together to open source something. Typically, we've been dealing in a world that has been largely closed source. And it's, uh, it's really a watershed moment. I mean, Ajit, are you seeing from, uh, you know, the work you're doing that people are moving towards open source in financial services? Is this a, is this a trend?
1: I think it depends. So, uh, especially if anything involves cryptography, right? You do want to open source it because it gives the a chance for the community to really test that software. And then, especially the crypto, because the crypto only works. Uh, in fact, one of the professors, one of my computer science professors, used to say that you shouldn't write your own crypto because. Uh, it probably hasn't been tested enough so when you open source something like that then you give the community a chance to test it properly and make sure it's it's robust you get a chance for the community give a chance for the community to comment on that and then you get the best ideas from the community back so I, I think that's a great move by R3 and, and we really welcome that
3: We've seen this in a few different dimensions, haven't we, in uh, AI or, you know, there's a few different areas that have sort of open source things to to sort of move towards establishing a standard. And that's what I sort of presume is, is behind this, essentially.
5: Yeah, I guess I guess that's right. I mean, maybe there's a few things to say there. So perhaps the first one, given he's, he's in the room, is um, uh, Richard Crook, who I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, um, sits on the, the steering committee of R3. The, the senior executive from each of our member banks sits on a, on a governing board, um, and it and it was it was Richard who helped crystallise the mission statement that led to the creation of Corda. We um, the very first actually the very first decision we made as a consortium was to establish what we call the architecture working group, which Sounds quite sounds quite dull. Sounds quite, uh, quite sounds quite processual. But actually, the architecture working group is this group of like hundreds and hundreds of senior architects from across all the banks. And the mission statement, and it was it was Richard who who um, who who, who, who crystallised this and, and came up with the wording, was to establish the architecture for an open enterprise grade shared ledger suitable for finan- suitable for financial institutions. Uh, I've simplified that slightly. So, but right there, right at the start, was to establish the architecture for an open platform it was it was the intention was this would be open from the start and there's several reasons from that one is several reasons for that one is exactly the reason that uh, Ajit mentioned which is you know, this is this is security critical software I mean, this is info this is in- infrastructure that will run across multiple institutions transferring controlling managing huge amounts of value it needs to have many eyes on it it needs to be reviewed it needs to be it needs to have integrity it's it's fiduciary code it's managing um, it's managing value and the other thing is, this this software has, you know, blockchain software in general has, has immense network effects. Multiple firms have to deploy it. Multiple firms have to agree to the same standard. And so it's imperative that that's not, that the stuff that gets deployed can't be controlled by a single sort of like profit-seeking um, organization. We, we need this to be something that's inclusive and something that's accessible to a large range of institutions and um, and consumers. So um, it's why not only is it being open source, it's why I stress that we're open sourcing it under the Apache 2 license, a so very permissive, a very very liberal license.
0: Interesting times. All well, banks felt very
2: proud to be one of the early banks that uh, invested in, uh, or signed up to the, the service agreement, and uh, Richard, uh, own, I think, Simon, you, uh, and I, uh, and Richard were around the table, uh, and at times, that uh, growing community of collaborating banks, uh, where we recognize that there's only so much fun you can have on your own with a the blockchain, therefore getting together as a consortium made sense. and, and uh, at times that 42 bank steer code looked a bit like a wedding reception uh, and very quickly the R3 management team have moved us forward and we drove out from that and if you think about it from the of body Python which is what has the Romans ever done for us, what has R3 ever done for us, it raised for us a ability to bring all the banks, all 42 of our 75 institutions, up to the same maturity level. Um we got a finance grade ledger out of it and we've been pushing hard. To, uh, to get uh, the corner co-based open-sourced. It's been kind of what we've been hammering away to try and say, get it out. It only works, just as we're hearing, it only works if it's open-sourced. Uh, we need the regulators on board, and uh, they've been very successful at their outreach program to the regulators to bring them on board and, and get them part of this journey. And last but not least, uh, the, the lab... Has seen uh, 50 projects through it now uh, and probably more and probably behind Mm -hmm. Uh, which is uh, a fantastic opportunity i've never seen that Mm -hmm. in my career Uh, open collaboration between competitor banks uh, on some of the areas which are their revenue streams because it's uh, a technology which is tearing through uh, certainly banks and institutions and it's interesting to see where it
0: goes. So there's, there's only so much fun you can have on your own, I think there's a good metaphor for this, I've I had an Xbox One for a little while. Hang on, hold on. You're not going <laughs> there. I'm not going there, I'm going somewhere else. I've had an Xbox One for a couple of years and uh, you know, I, I had some fun on it but uh, very, very recently I got a second uh, control pad for it. It turns out you can have a lot more fun when there are two control pads but imagine an Xbox without Xbox Live. I think really this whole thing gets better when you've got more people involved. And a network technology by yourself is kind of pointless. It's like having a telephone and having nobody to call. But, but
4: to take that, um, that metaphor and extend it a bit, obviously there's the Xbox One and there's PlayStation. So when we look at groups and consortia, you know, how does that play in this space? You know, where does Korda fit against against Hyperledger? So,
5: first of all, may I congratulate you for pluralizing consortium correctly.
1: So,
5: there are a few things there. So, I, I agree with all of that. Maybe first on what Simon said about the, 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 the Xbox versus the uh, the Xbox um, net, Xbox um, Live network. So, so we, we completely agree. So, you know, we want, there are network effects, there are ecosystem effects here. We want as many people as possible building on this. We want as many people as possible contributing to it, developing for it. Um, um, and and it's worth it's worth um, just pointing out that you know, we we're not building Corda for the fun of it because we think it's a marginal improvement or it's it's just, just a slightly different me too to something else. It is, and I think people will be we will see this when we release it. It is it is quite fundamentally different in some ways to some of the blockchain platforms. And one of the things that is there are many things that are different, but one in particular is it's designed for managing agreements, managing contracts between identifiable parties. The idea is you can use this to you know, to manage contracts, manage agreements. So so as so just as a matter of fact, we need to know who the people on the network are. They've got identities. We need to know that I'm transacting with Richard. Richard's transacting with Simon, and so forth. So 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 immediately, this is you know, this this has to be a network where we know who the identities are. We know who's connected to it. So therefore, there needs to be some question about how the network is operated and who can connect to it. But but to um, so, so 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 I agree with Simon on that. But to your question about Xbox and, and PlayStation, um, again, this is something that, that Richard and others have been sort of, you know, sort of I guess. Um, insistent on and show great leadership on throughout this journey is that we have to focus just with an insane amount of intensity on, on interoperability. Um, it is not the case that 10, 20, 30 different platforms will get deployed. People simply won't do it. But neither is it the case that one platform will get deployed. There will be a small number and they have to interoperate. And we're we are maniacally focused on that.
1: So I have two questions on that. And uh, I think about consortia in two ways, right? You can have existing value chains like supply chains and where suppliers and buyers and let's say Walmart have always been working together. And Or you can have within industry consortia. And within industry consortia, much harder to manage, right? Because they, are, they have competitive dynamics, they have different incentives. And what you've been able to do with 75 different banks, I think, is absolutely formidable. Now, going back to interoperability, so Bank of England came out with the RTGS paper, right? And they said that the next generation RTGS needs to be distributed ledger ready, which probably means that if you have a securities ledger, like Coda, and then that needs to be able to work with the payments ledger, which is potentially RTGS, So how do you see, I think, Simon, uh, you should be asking the questions, but since I've got Richard, I'm going to ask it anyways. How do you see that interoperability working out? It, it's it's great that you asked
5: the question that way because i've um i, I was joking to a colleague earlier that my um my, my, my patience for for abstract abstract questions about interoperability is, is um is, is is finite whereas mm-hmm. you asked a very specific question which is yeah. if i've got a securities ledger in one place and there's a cash ledger somewhere else how do they interoperate mm-hmm. and 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 the the answer is that's the right way to think about it because from the perspective of one of these distributed ledgers does it actually matter that the thing of the other side that manages the cash is a, is also a blockchain, is also a distributed ledger? Actually, the answer is for many scenarios, it actually doesn't. What you actually care about is if I've got you know, some platform here, in my, you know, my blockchain cord or whatever it is that's managing some, some subset of the world's securities, if I need to be able to instruct a payment and make sure it happens atomically and make sure I get true delivery versus payment, whether that thing on the other side is a traditional RTGS or it's some bank access over Swift or it's some other blockchain. Actually, it's immaterial. I still need to be able to instruct the payment, know it's happened, and do those two things at the same time with finality. Um, so we've done a, a huge amount of work in the architecture working group that, that Richard helped found. Um, I mean, we've not published them externally yet, but there was a huge amount of work over the spring, summer, and into autumn where we did 11 parallel pieces of work, each of which has produced a really detailed white paper that said, wow. this is our considered view on how you do interoperability, how you Model cash, how you model assets, how you do security, how you address non-functional requirements. There's 11 of these things, which will be um, we'll be releasing um, in in the coming months. Mm -hmm. So, is this Mm -hmm. where
4: distributed ledgers meet APIs? Yes,
2: yeah, I think it is. Absolutely right. I mean, you you you're seeing a a, a classic hype curve, and everybody's trying to put a blockchain on everything or everything on a (laughs) blockchain. (laughs) And you're you're you'll very quickly see the recognition that there are those problems that we solve with a database and an API. Uh, an RTGS over a central bank which has a central authority is going to be a database with an API and that's why you saw the Bank of England coming out and saying we won't be using blockchain on RTGS at, <laughs> at least for that but the, the interoperability between two blockchains or, or two distributed ledger technologies or a distributed ledger technology and an API, Jason, you're absolutely right it's interesting then. So
0: blockchain, um, there's a story um, I looked at earlier that was saying that uh, the key with blockchain is to make something people want, because blockchain has arguably become a bit of a fetish. But, uh, you know, if, if you're not getting your whips and chains out, what's the real utility here? I mean, are we solving specific problems um, for specific markets? Or is this just, is it the panacea that will solve everything?
2: I think if you, you broadly look at it from a point of view of uh, the three layers, uh, three concerns we're seeing good strong convergence of the tech layer uh, and that is now forming itself as uh, open source uh, and that is analogous to uh, the public IP or internet as, as we now see it uh, we are going to see the emergence of uh, a number probably a small number absolute absolutely agree of platforms uh, and that's analogous to the Amazons and the Googles and then I think after that Uh, we want to make sure that the separation of those two so that the platform can't in any way own that technology layer has to be open access otherwise you don't get to see the disruptors coming in later like the sites of Instagram tearing a a huge new market open and that's where from our perspective as Royal Bank Scotland as a a client and a user of that um, uh, infrastructure we don't want to make a kingmaker of, of any of those concerns.
5: And, and Richard makes a really good point. You asked about, you know, is the, you know, is this just hype or is this just, um, you know, is this just a world where blockchain is is, is the flavour that is jour and. And clearly there is there is a lot of that. I mean, uh, I um, you know, as, as, as CTO of R3, um, I, I should be, I guess, the cheerleader for this space. But you know, the amount of stuff that crosses my desk, you know, various articles and various websites, when I read them and I read claims for what blockchain supposedly can do, and it's you just you just you just roll your eyes. It is just um, you know, there is so much unnecessary hype, and it's it, it. I think it's why we've taken the path we have. And I guess you know the the, the, the members will know this, and I've written about it. We we spent considerable, Considerable time back in September, October, November last year, really just trying to ask ourselves two questions. And it seemed quite theoretical at the time, but it was the foundation of everything that followed. It was to say, well, what if anything is genuinely new about this? We can't just accept the hype and just accept that this blockchain thing's cool. Let's go and apply it to finance. You yeah, it's just, that would be madness. Um, so we asked ourselves, what if anything is new? And then once we figured out if there is something new, what's the relevance to finance? Yeah, oh, the famous worry yeah. wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if,
1: if, yeah. if I go to Finland and I say blockchain, right, I think I'm going to get a, an electric shock, they prefer the term distributed ledgers. And I think that's that's really important. The distinction between blockchain as one way of implementing a distributed ledger or a data structure and distributed ledgers as a way of sharing information in a trusted way across a value chain or potentially in a consortium of uh, single industry counterparties is is a particularly important point. Although you- it sounds a bit theoretical, I would say that what we are really looking at is sharing information in a trusted manner uh, between counterparties that don't trust each other. And that's not hype. right? And,
2: it's it's, important. I think we add to that uh, the next layer on top of that, which is consensus. And the Indeed. whole point of a distributed ledger is I absolutely agree. If you add the extra angle here, which is the test of whether you should be using blockchain or distributed ledgers, with, exactly and right. we absolutely agree with you, it's a family, it's a consensus. <laughs> and if you've got, and one of the best use cases that came out uh, very early on was the land registry. We should put the land registry on the blockchain. No, we shouldn't. The land registry registry is a central authority. It tells you who owns which bit of land. It's not a consensus. We're not trying to come to consensus about who owns what. It is a central authority. It will be a database with an API. We may want it to be more efficient and more open. We don't want it on a blockchain or a distributed ledger. So consensus, and you've got to find when you're looking at these use cases, am I trying to get consensus? But so do you think this this sort
3: of overhype of what it can and can't do then sort of damages the ability to to do the things that it actually can do really well? You know, to your point, Richard, we've seen curing cancer, you know, world hunger, all of the above type of vehicles. Exactly, you know, so, so does does that in any way potentially you know, we've seen buzzwords come and go in, in various different forms and actually does this damage the ability to really legitimately move this forward?
5: I, It's hard to tell, so I... So I'm, you know, we're r three. I when you know, through 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 the team that I lead, you know, I'm I'm very clear on how we communicate about this. And you read our writings, you read what we talk about. We don't make inflated claims, and we're very precise about the things we think it can address. Um, I've I've not intervened in any kind of way too to debunk things that I think don't make sense because I don't have the details. I don't know that some of the things people are, are claiming um, are um, you know
3: what they're doing. It's not my position to comment. I'd love to but, think you're know, doing that though. Like that would be a good thing to do. On Twitter. You could literally spend twenty four seven just debunking stuff that people are tweeting about it. That would be a, be a fun week, wouldn't it? Yeah. No,
5: and, you know, after all, you know, arguing with people on the internet is extreme fun. So you know, <laughs> so you do it, do it, do it, do it on your, do it on your, do it on your days off, I guess. But but it but it's worth just echoing what both Adrian and Richard have said because it gets lost in the noise. Is at the core of this, it's it's really quite simple. It's 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 this it's the synthesis of what those two just said, which is. This is all about. If there's ever a situation where two or more people are recording the same information, it's making sure that they record the same information, and that when that information changes, it changes in the same way. So you think, well, where do you have that problem in finance? Where do you have that in commerce, in business, anywhere? It's wherever the same. If you you do any kind of deal with someone, you've got a balance in a bank. Wherever that information is recorded, two or more times, just using ledger technology helps you make sure it's consistent and it evolves correctly, and you don't have this reconciliation nightmare. We're in canary warfare, level thirty-nine. I'm looking out. I won't name them. I can see one, two, three, four different banks. I would I, I would, I, I don't even want to imagine how many of those floors are full of people effectively solving the problems caused by the fact that different banks record the same information and in different know, ways in different India places. Yeah, people in India right now.
4: So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I guess when I talk about distributed ledger with engineer friends, quite often they'll turn around and say. Distributed ledger, distributed database. We've had distributed databases for a very long time. You know, consensus Paxos does that. You know, you want to do distributed databases? Why not put Cassandra everywhere? So, um, uh, you know, how do? You, and, and personally, I always then look at the the distributed databases amongst people who don't necessarily trust each other. You know, how would you explain yeah. it to that so you, that engineer?
5: You, you, you've nailed it. So. So thank you. It's almost as if you've just given an advert for, for a blog post I, I put put out earlier this week. But, uh, it's, <laughs> but it's but it's exactly that point. It's you know if think about how distributed databases work. You've got a whole bunch of nodes that either or each contain the data and they keep it in sync because of Paxos or Raft or whatever algorithms used, or they keep that each of them's got a, a shard of the data. But but that whole set of systems cooperate. They work together, and they're almost they are invariably run by the same organization, and they they cooperate to preserve this and maintain this data. And they and they put an access control layer on, around the outside. I mean, the thing I joked about in my blog post was, you can imagine they're all sort of shouting at each other how it, it's us against the world. We're, we're collaborating to keep the bad guys out, and we're maintaining this data and keeping it coherent. The, that is not the assumption with distributed ledgers, because each of those, 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 those systems, each of those nodes, they're not all run by the same organization. We want to have one in that bank. We want to have one in a different bank. And yet we still want them to have the same information in them. But... They can't trust each other because you have to, it's it's the whole trust but verifying. When someone sends you data, you have to rerun the same rules to check the data has been processed correctly. So you end up with a very different design.
4: And does that extend then to smart contracts?
5: Yeah, because the smart contract says, if somebody says, I I think we've done this deal, we've both agreed that we've got this interest rate swap. I've just seen the interest rate from from Thomson Reuters as 1%, therefore you owe me a million dollars. Okay, fine, but I'm going to check that for myself. I'm going to go calculate it as well and check that I get to that same answer. And we both do it and we both come to the same answer. And therefore, the, 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 there's no doubt.
2: It's a spectrum. It's, not a, it's never going to be, uh, it's a broad family. And at one end of that is shared databases. And your engineering friends are absolutely right. Much as my engineers look at me and go, if we put all this blockchain, all these nodes of these blockchains, even if they're run by different banks, in the same data center, under the same cloud provider, we've basically got DB2, right? <laughs> so that doesn't, that that so you could, there's so many patterns at one end of that spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, we're talking about digital currencies, which is the kind of mm-hmm. the, the, the startup use case that we that this came from, and, and they're very different technologies underneath the covers of, of blockchain versus at the other end, sort of big chain DB, and uh, as we said, Cassandra. So distributed ledgers is, is, a, is a broad family. At its heart, it's consensus between two untrusted actually parties they don't trust each other you've got to verify them and secure them fine but they've got to be untrusted they don't trust each other otherwise and we keep pointing this out the internal use cases don't feel very valid because somewhere in your organization as i go further up the food chain you're going to knock heads together and go you could do this with a database." Exactly. Possibly.
0: I think there is something where, and not the risk of being contrarian, there are reasons why different parts of one organization don't trust each other. And there are reasons why different organizations themselves don't trust each other. Now, there, some of these reasons might be these people aren't allowed to see what these other people see. Now, yes, you could organize that in the database if you have the administrative privileges absolutely right. But for some reason, I think there is something where people like the hack of being able to use all things blockchain. But you don't need consensus for that. What you need is digital
1: signatures and you need timestamps, right?
0: But you don't need consensus for protocols. But you can see why people go that way through. They want the consensus to hack that way. But right. that's a really, really interesting thing because I think something
5: that drives... Actually, something that confuses people the first time they hear about Corda is we don't talk about consensus that much. You know, people say, do you use Raft? Do you use Paxos? Do you use Honey, Badger, BFT? And all these different um, these different algorithms. And the answer is you can use any or all of them um, because, one... Different different problems require different consensus algorithms, exactly. and actually, the reality is networks need multiple ones because for different business it, cases. It but the point the is, but, it, but it, that that actually, yes. t- even though it seems that you think it's the heart of it, it actually turns out to be be a detail. It takes but us back. Well, 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 well,
2: well, yeah. to a conversation yeah. you and I had um, late last year, which was when we were looking at Corda and we were putting it on the whiteboard and talking about this. But so the, the original use case of Bitcoin, the experiment of Bitcoin, requires huge crowd consensus. Yes. We want to up democracy, right? right? And, and when you're talking about consensus, it's forms of government. And, and actually, what we found with Ethereum when we were looking at uh, domestic payments is actually what we want is just a benign dictator and you then move the dictator around the room because you really want, back to the Ethernet days of token rings, so, you want a token ring to go around. And actually, the conversation you and I had was we're trying to have a contract between two parties, maybe more, but two parties and, and maybe another or three, mm-hmm. we only want consensus between the three of us. Yes. In fact, we don't want anybody else <laughs> so, yes, to know what we've done. Richard mean,
1: here is, is a selfish comment, right? Why not put an auditor in the system and then you don't have to worry that much about consensus?
2: And I think that's probably why you're seeing Deloitte, yourselves, PwC coming into this space because you see the need for that
1: third party, at least not
5: trust. So, so I, don't, I don't disagree with any of that. So, you know, I, the point I make is, I keep coming back to it, and Simon, I think, nailed it, was um, you know, it's about building systems where multiple parties who don't fully trust each other can come to consensus about the existence, nature, evolution of some set of shared facts, just the ones that pertain to you. Mm-hmm. The idea that you know, I do, you and I do a deal, um, some sort of private, I lend you some money, you lend me some money and suddenly Simon gets a copy and not only Simon gets a copy, he processes it and he votes on whether the transaction happens. <laughs> why should he vote on whether the transaction happens? It, it, on its face, it's manifestly insane. So so, it, so that was why we ended up, um, you know, it's why we went on the road that ended with us building, building because although the the existing blockchain platforms had shown the way and shown it was possible to build these systems that allow us to come to consensus with each other, it doesn't follow that those designs are exactly what we need. And a case in point would be um, there are different levels of trust. Now, I might be willing to lend a tenner to Simon, maybe a hundred, who knows? But if I, I could lend him the money, but would I also, so I trust him to pay it back But would I trust him to be in sole control of the records as to the fact I'd lent it to him? Well, no, I might want to keep hold of the records as well. So there's different gradations of trust. That's a very, very
0: important point indeed. It it is. And I think uh, to really summarize it for some of our listeners, (laughs) the way you said it best to me once, Richard, was uh, how do I know what's inside somebody else's database. I don't know what's in your database. You don't know what's in my database. And so being able to have that consensus gives us that capability. And where that trust line isn't there, where I can simply see into your database, you've built a set of technologies that solve a set of problems for a set of people that have We problem. Think we, 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 often, we often simplify it down exactly to that, which is we talk
5: about, it's all about allowing me to know that what I see is what you see. I know that you see the same as I do.
1: What I really like like about what R3 have done is they have been trying to solve the right problem and then building the technology to solve the problem that they're going after. And as an engineer, that's really important to me. You don't want to be solving a problem for the most generic use case or the extreme use case and then trying to apply the same technology
0: to a much more controlled environment. It just doesn't work. So speaking of extreme use cases and extreme technology and extreme generally, um, there's an article here that says, despite the Trump bump. Bitcoin still strives for a safe haven stasis. Uh, like uh, Richard, you and I, uh, Richard Crick, you and I talked about um, whether or not there was a, a correlation here. Um, you know, just as an observer, do you see any any sort of Bitcoin goes up when market goes down? Is this something that is, is a plausible theory, or is this something that uh, you know, as a cryptocurrency, it's still just very much in the wild west, and we can't really draw any conclusions from it? I
2: don't think uh, Bitcoin is is still an experiment. Uh, it's new. We've never had a digital asset that actually has value. The market uh, places value to it, seven hundred dollars or whatever it is today, at ten billion market cap, uh, and the look that it's correlating to Metcalfe's law um, shows that you know Bitcoin is uh, is starting to mature. That said, it, it's still a currency that is majority owned by a few, and that's not the basis of a, a good economy. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to see the vast majority of financial services being built upon that type of currency.
0: Interesting times. and Gents, um, I want to throw it open to you and get your thoughts on Zcash. Um, we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Is this something that's a genuine evolution over the top of Bitcoin? Is this something financial services could ever use or is it still too early? So I...
5: I, I, so I guess I'm so focused on, on what we're building. I, I don't pay as much attention as I used to to, to what's going on in, with the public cryptocurrencies. But, but but Zcash is one that got my attention because there's, so, so, so leave aside the, obviously there's some controversy around the founder's reward and the actual, the, the ceremony you have to go through to set it up. So, so I have no idea about whether Zcash will prove to work, whether it will prove to, to be successful. But it strikes me as it... you know, the, the, you look on the, the evolution of, you know, of, of real, real innovation from, from Bitcoin to Ethereum to Zcash. It, it does feel like a, um, a big step forward.
1: I'm, I'm at Zuko last year and in New York, and uh, I think what was really interesting from the conversation was that this isn't just about the cryptocurrency or using zero knowledge proofs for in, enforcing sort of some sort of privacy on the cryptocurrency network. It's so much more about can we actually use the technology that they have built and use that for, for example, uh, databases, right? So information that resides in routine databases inside financial systems and build some uh, privacy th- technology where you can actually validate the information for example digital identity right if i go to a bar i don't want every i don't want to have to show my driver's license because i don't want some of the well people to know my age i do want them to know if uh, if i'm over 18 or not right so zero knowledge proofs are a way of essentially proving that i'm over 18 without actually telling my age i mean that's a very simplified layman's version so I think that technology is fundamentally brilliant, right? If it works, then we have a lot of applications that extend way beyond anything to do with Bitcoin.
2: We're seeing the, the creation of, of new altcoins, uh, we used to call them um, Dash, um, Zcash. Uh, was it Zcash? Zcash, I assume. That Dash is uh, merely, and Zcash to that instance are merely uh, improvements on the original Bitcoin. So this is kind of version bitcoin 2.0 if you want the the, the dash currency provides uh, some improvements that bitcoin was failing with and that's actually quite impressive because we're now seeing the emergence of new currencies that may or may not challenge bitcoin's supremacy yeah it's been interesting to watch uh, zcash especially the futures uh, being traded Again, that's a personal view. uh, These are currencies that are majority owned by a few. It is, as you describe it, the Wild West, totally unregulated, Area of financial services. One of the yeah. things Jason said um,
0: when the Dow hack happened was um, very much you're in the wild west you live by the gun you die by the gun you live by the sword you die by the sword there is definitely this this unregulated uh, space that's creating a lot of experimentation uh, but also dominates a lot of the headlines and it's been interesting uh, listening to yourselves talk about what financial services are really doing away from the hype is there something that you would leave our listeners with as kind of your your kind of cheat sheet for, for what's real here in blockchain and why should some care if they've not necessarily really thought about blockchain before
1: so I was in the middle of in the tick of the dot-com boom in 1997 right and my experience is well I'm that old first of all (laughs) (laughs) that without hype you're not gonna get the big corporations to change anything right so hype has a value first of all now hype is what forces some of the corporate executives to actually move and look at some of the innovation that's happening in the industry so i have nothing against hype now some of uh, now a lot of these corporate executives aren't ignorant right they actually know their businesses really well and they will filter through some of these examples and use cases and they will filter through the hype but then a lot of innovation that has happened in the internet after the hype died down and their stocks fell to where they belonged is profound so I'm, i think we're going to see the same thing with Uh, Blockchain and distributed ledger technologies and distributed ledger ways of running a business. So, we're going to see some fundamentally new business models come out and we'll see some transformation happen as well. And I think that's big enough. To me, that's exciting enough
3: to not worry about the hype. I think there's a, I think there's a, I'm. I'm not sure hype is enough. Having having sat in a bank and having spoken to many banks. Yeah, I think I think fear is generally the driver, and 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 arguably for me, I think with with this technology, I think the fear of making a decision that ultimately takes them down a path that they can't get themselves out of is actually what's broadening most of the bank's horizons in this. Yeah. It's actually the, the sort of, uh, you know, where we're seeing many people needing to replace core cool banking engines, we're seeing many people having to make wholesale structural changes to their and architecture. Data
1: warehouses, we have had data warehousing projects in every single bank, and exactly. we've had most of them fail. Yeah,
3: and, 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 and arguably the bad thing about banks in some instances has been procurement forcing them to make sure that they've got all of the dark corners figured out. But actually, the best thing in this one is making sure that actually if you're about to step into a a journey that's going to be spending, you know, 100 million or plus 100 million on actually changing your organization from a technological perspective, making sure you're understanding all of the different angles that that might take. So it's almost forcing the banks to understand this stuff before they start really facing into some of the really big problems that they're actually I mean, in
1: reality, I don't know of any bank that's really spending that kind of money on this technology. I mean, apart from potentially some large strategic investments. The innovation labs are spending a lot less money, right? So they're actually hedging their bets and making sure they know enough about this technology Mm -hmm. so that they are able to manage disruption when it comes to them. From uh, So when I was at the Ethereum meetup last night, right? And these are the boys and girls that don't really know how things are supposed to be done. Mm And those are the ones that you have to really worry about because if they don't know how things are supposed to be done, they might actually do things in a way that you hadn't imagined in a much, much, much better way. So when I think about innovation, I'm not really thinking about banks and capital markets. I'm thinking about these Bitcoiners and cypherpunks and people that I I don't think we are spending enough time with. And they might create new Exactly. So they might create new ways of doing things because they just don't know that this is
4: how things are supposed to be. And that's where things start to really disrupt. So is the Cypherpunk Safari a new offering from PwC? Is that what you're saying? Right. And, uh, <laughs> no, no. You, you can need... take a tour of the, uh, the, the dark site, you know, um I'm cryptographic underworld. Yeah, I'm, you I'm you right.
3: straight you after you you the show, I'm down.
4: <laughs> <laughs> we stay very close to them because we want to know what's coming.
2: So, so you look at it from uh, World Bank's College We're driven by our customers. Yeah, our customers' demands uh, and what they're asking for and services and improvements to those services, being speed, cost efficiency, drives us then into that innovation space to make those cost efficiencies. And over the last decade, uh, the large wholesale investment banks have uh, moved to single sources of truth inside their buildings and have done that quite successfully. And they can't gain any more cost efficiency gains in that space. And what they're realising is there's still, as which looks out of the window at these floors of of. of back office cottage industries who are doing reconciliations what they're reconciling against is the other the other office, the other building yes, yes. Uh, not internally, it's external and that's where the uh, belief on distributed leisure is that we can get to single source of truth between them better still, the regulator will be reading from that single source of truth and having done so lift the onus of the regulatory requirements of us reporting on data having spent 10 years of my career reporting regulatory reports to the Bank of England on a daily basis, you know, if you lifted that, those costs drive out and that is where we are moving to and that is trying to move to the benefit of the So customer. is it
0: fair to flip that on its head and say as banks start to reduce costs, um, they can focus a lot less on trying to keep the lights on and hopefully, hopefully start to focus on um, building more things for customers and innovating more because at the moment they are saddled arguably with, with a lot of cost that is required. Uh, and you know the the hope here is maybe that starts to change, and and what that means to to uh, to my parents, to your parents, is uh, new digital services. Absolutely. But because you have the investment available, because you pushed out cost from the way you used to do things twenty, thirty years ago.
5: It's I think quite possibly. I mean, it, it's without wanting to echo what Adrian Richard have just said, it you know, if. If you're an organization who has got people and systems that exist to simply check that what you have in your systems, what you have in your records, what you've calculated is the same as somebody else previously you only really had two levers one was you could just radically cut costs by outsourcing or offshoring those people and trying to optimize the process or you would get together and try and build some industry infrastructure and you'd create some some company that, that, that you would all agree to trust and then you'd um, you, you, set so some sort of central infrastructure. What what, um, what distributed ledger is, is showing that we might be able to do provided you've got the right underlying software mm-hmm. is is know that your systems are correct because by, correct by construction correct by software they are identical to what in your counterparts without having had to go and um, build a central infrastructure that costs money and has to
1: be and has to be the potential for disputes yeah. and lawsuits yeah. and audit, reducing the cost of audit and so on. So there's a lot of frictional cost in the system that distributed ledgers can take out.
5: I, it's, it's a bit of a joke and maybe this isn't directly tied to, um, to blockchain, but you're talking about the example of you know, banks that are any kind of institution that can't respond quickly to their customers. I guess for your non-British readers, British listeners who might not know it, there's a British comedy series and it's called Little Britain where there's a recurring sketch where somebody goes into a bank branch and they ask for a loan or they ask for something and the person behind the counter just types away, types away, the computer beeps and buzzes and all kinds of things go wrong. And the answer is always you know, computer says no. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the vision is if we could just get rid of all that complexity, we could get rid of all these mismatched systems, we get to
0: computer says yes, I think right there we have to end because that's the best metaphor of the of the entire podcast. Uh, Richard Brown from R3, where can people find out more about R3? R3.com. Uh, Richard Crook, is there anywhere people can find out about what RBS are up to in innovation?
2: Yeah, bankofapis.com.
0: Bankofapis.com. And Ajit, uh, any way people can find out more what PwC are doing? Absolutely. So just search for PwC
1: and blockchain and you will find everything about what we're doing in this space. Thank you so much for your time.
0: And that's it for this week's Fintech Insider. We love hearing from you. Give us a review on iTunes or tweet us at @FinTechInsiders Insiders or at 11FS team. That's 11FS team. We want to hear more from you. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Or just insult my voice. Whatever you want. We'll speak to you soon. Have a great week.